Jesus made bold claims, and the people of his time were trying to figure out who he really was. His claims left them confused and sometimes angry. Through his powerful I am statements, Jesus invites us to gain a fresh perspective and a deeper understanding of who he truly is. Each statement gradually reveals the divinity and character of Jesus. As we piece them together, we see how knowing him changes everything. We know who he is because he said, I am. Well, good morning, and uh, from Florida. Uh, we brought some sun with us, and um, I'm gonna try not to get like super emotional here, but uh, I just wanna thank you for the privilege it is to be back, just to see you guys again, uh, to be able to be back in this place. I wanna thank Bob, and uh, you have a fantastic pastor, guys. You really do. And uh, yeah. And uh, I've learned more from him than, uh, than I should probably admit to, good and bad. I mean, you learn from <laughs> both parts. But it's, it's a privilege to be back. It's great to be back in this place. I mean, some of the best moments, literally some of the best memories of my life have been on this stage. And so it is great to be here with so many people in the room. It's great to see so many of you, to be back in a city that holds so many people that we hold dear. Uh, to be back in the city where my kids were born, they were born here. To be back in a city where... It's acceptable to wear a bicycle helmet through an entire dinner in a restaurant. Like, that's kind of fun to be back in a place where that's a normal thing. I mean, there's just things that only happen in the Pacific Northwest. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, there's some things, like, we brought our kids back here, and they were like, we want to wear our Crocs and socks. And we're like, I think that's fine here. I think in Florida, that makes you a tourist. Here, that makes you a local. And that's, that's fun. I, we, we used to live on Cornwall Avenue downtown, like, which is ironic. We lived right on Cornwall Avenue for a little while. And I remember there was one day where we, I was driving up the road. And I was, as I was driving up, there was somebody on their bike. And they had their dogs. They had a dog on each side of the bike. They had leashes attached to each handlebar, which is a bold move, by the way. If those dogs pull, I mean, you're done. So they had each dog on each side and they're riding their bike. And I was like, man, that's amazing. Like, that's really incredible. And they were on a normal size bike because also in Bellingham, it's weird because sometimes you get a double-decker bike, which is, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know that person. And so there's like, they're on a normal bike, but they have their, their, their dogs on each side. And behind them, they had fashioned a trailer it was like a pet taxi that they put wheels on. And I was like, well, if they have a dog on each side. Like, what is in that pet taxi? And so I slowed down intentionally to look in the pet taxi. And as I looked in, there was a live turkey. <laughs> it wasn't on my bingo card, but like it also wasn't completely unexpected. You were like, well, I guess I should know where I'm at. That, that kind of checks out. You know, and so we, and, and I, if you know this area, if you know this area, here's the thing is, it's a good area. Like, there are good things here. There are beautiful things here. Over the last few days, we've been touristing at some things that like when you live here, you don't do, but when you come as a tourist, you do those things, you know what I'm talking about? So we went out like whale watching and we, we've done like those things, which my family, they were like, it's summer on a boat, it's gonna be beautiful. And so we got out on the boat and guys, I don't know if you know this or not, but like Florida summer on a boat is very different than Pacific Northwest summer on a boat. And I spent like $200 on sweatshirts for my entire family. <laughs> 
because they were all freezing. It's very, very different. And so we were out and like doing all these things. I'm thinking, this is such a beautiful place. There are so many great things about this place. And so what's difficult is when we come to a passage like what we're going to talk about today, it kind of flies in the face of what we're in tune with. Like the way that our world works, it actually kind of seems to be difficult to talk about because it feels counterintuitive to hear this. We're in John chapter 14, and there's this moment where Jesus, he's just finished the Last Supper. He just had this communion moment, and now he's moving into this teaching where he's going to talk about being the vine and the branches in John chapter 15. But before he gets there, in John chapter 14, he lays out this line that, again, kind of flies in the face of our culture today because he says this, Jesus answered, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the life. Now, I don't know about you, but we kind of have the life made, right? Like, it's going pretty good. I mean, I think that's hard for us to grapple with. I remember when I moved to Bellingham, what I realized about ministry, you know why ministry is really hard in Bellingham? I don't know if you know this or not. You know what's difficult about this area, and it's one of the lowest church per capita in the nation, and you know why it's difficult, in my opinion, is not because life is bad, it's because life is good. Like, why do I need Jesus if I've got everything that I want? Why do I need Jesus if everything is going good? I mean, we, when I, I remember moving here and realizing like, oh, people like, they're financially doing okay. Most people, there's, there's enough wealth, like there's enough here. Most people, they like, have a decent relationship, they, they, have, they like their families or they like their spouses, they volunteer at things, like they'll show up to just altruistic events, they'll give money to charitable causes, they like recycle, I mean, it's, like, I mean, it's good people, it's like good people doing good things. So when Jesus says, I am the life, like why do we need that? Like what, what, what are you talking about? I've, I've got the life, I've got it figured out. But what Jesus is saying here is much deeper than that. So I would challenge that we have one part of life figured out. So the Greeks, if you go through ancient Greek philosophy, what you'll find is they were looking for multiple forms of life. There were two specific ones that I want to talk about, but there was a type of life that they would call the hedoni. And if you hear in that word, hedonic or hedonism, that's what it means. There were little pockets of life. Things were good here or there. They had the things that they wanted and the things that they chased. Those were going pretty well. There was that part that was good. But there was this other part called the logos of life. And the logos, we see many philosophers as far back as Aristotle and Plato talking about what the logos of life was. And the logos was the deeper, bigger container of life. One historian, his name was Philo, and he wrote in 25 BC, right before Jesus shows up, and I had to write this quote down. I did not memorize it. I apologize. But it said this. He writes that this is what the logos of life means. Universal, divine reason, imminent in nature, yet transcending all oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and humanity. And listen to this. This is what the logos of life was. An eternal and unchanging truth present from the time of creation and available to every individual who seeks it. Philo's saying that's this meaning. 
And what we're doing is we're seeing these Hadonai moments. Yes, we're good at Hadonai. Like we're, we're good at getting those little things, those little glimpses. But at the end of the day, are we really seeing the logos, the bigger picture, the greater container of life? Is that there? Jonathan Nor, uh, 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 I'm sorry, Johan Norberg in his book, um, I'm Englishizing him. I'm like making him an American. Uh, Jonathan, his name is Johan. Johan Norberg, uh, he writes in his book, Progress. He writes a lot about this. And actually he would make the case that our Hadonai is great. He writes, this is a recent book where he wrote this, despite what we hear on the news from many authorities, the great story of our era is that we are witnessing the greatest improvement in global, global living standards to ever take place. Poverty, malnutrition, illiteracy, child labor, infant mortality, they're falling faster than at any other time in human history. Life expectancy at birth has increased more than twice as much as in the last century as it has in the previous 20,000 years. The risk that any individual will be exposed to war or die in a natural disaster or be subject to a dictatorship has, um, has become smaller than any other epoch, which is a fun word to have in a book. A child born today is more likely to reach retirement age than his forebearers were to live to their fifth birthday. Our Hadonai's killing it. And you would think we got it all put together, right? Like life is good, so why do we need this Jesus thing? They're, the logos doesn't matter because our Hadonai's doing pretty great. But then at the same time, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, or just like been a human, I would challenge that I, I think um, our fear is maybe at an all-time high. Read any study right now, and I could name quite a few. People in our country feel more fearful than they do hopeful. Across the board, we are fearful. And who are we fearful of? We're fearful of other people, right? Specifically, <clears throat> politically. We're like terrified of people who don't think like us. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Maybe it's only Florida. <laughs> we get nervous about that, right? We're fearful of people. We're fearful of like possessions. Like we want to hold on to what we have, the way of life that we've created, the things that we have. We're protective of those things. Instead of believing there's a God who's like inherently generous and is always, always, always more than enough, we get really fearful about those things. And fear begins to lead to anxiety. And anxiety is actually the outpouring of fear. Brene Brown, uh, the famous researcher on these things, she writes specifically that anxiety is the body's response to worry and fear. We live in an epidemic of anxiety because we're trying to hold on to control and protect what's ours. The current culture we're in, by the way, um, for about really since about 1980 to 2003, anxiety really didn't move a lot. Like a diagnosable anxiety was very, very rare. And then uh, we got into the 2000s, like 2003 to 2019. And at that point, up to 2019, about 6% of Americans had a diagnosable anxiety disorder. 6%. And then this thing happened. And I don't know if it happened out here. Uh, it might have just been where I live. But there was like a pandemic. I, Seems like it, seems, maybe you know about it. Maybe you've heard of it. And this happens, and suddenly that rate of anxiety disorders goes from 6% to 37%. 
And you know how it is. There's always that one person. That means like one in two people almost. I mean, like one in a couple will have this. And I believe that like usually there's that one person who's hyper anxious. Then there's the other person who's like frustratingly laid back. And those two people marry each other. That's just how life works. <laughs> just be ready for that. And we're fighting for control. Elizabeth Gilbert uh, writes this beautiful line where she says, you are afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control, but you never had control. All you had was anxiety. Anybody feel that? Because we're fighting for control. This is also the Elizabeth Gilbert, yes, that wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Some of us are big Julia Roberts fans. It's fine. <laughs> don't judge. And then what that turns into from anxiety, it really turns into disappointment. We become a people of disappointment. Because the world we were promised, the things that we were told we would have, everything is always up and to the right. And then all of a sudden we get there and we realize maybe it wasn't everything we dreamed to be. Many authors, many, many authors write about what's called the myth of progress, where we believed in a more preferable future. We thought if we got here, everything would be perfect and solved. Anybody experience this? You start to believe this. You start to fall in line with this. There's a myth of progress. There is no actual evidence, by the way, that like when you build your house and you build this beautiful mini mansion in, the, in, in this huge plot of land or whatever, and you move your family in there, there is no proof that you are any happier today doing that than the first caveman was when he found the first cave for his family. Like, he was just as happy. Like, look what we got. And we believe that we are happier or we're moving to a more preferable future. And the reality is that's a myth of progress. And sometimes it leaves us disappointed. In fact, the author John Cheever, he writes that the standard, like the emotional standard of Americans today, the main emotion of an adult American who's had all these advantages of wealth and education and culture, the most common emotion of that person is disappointment. We live in a constant state of disappointment. So we're fighting for something that's just not there. Why? Because we're really good at Hadonai. We've forgotten about Logos. What's the purpose? What's the meaning behind it? And this isn't just here in the Pacific Northwest. And this isn't just the ancient Greeks who were talking about this. This goes all the way back to the beginning. This is what we see at the beginning of time. If you ever read Genesis 1 and you read it in the Hebrew, and I'm not going to be able to do that for you, but I've heard it read in the Hebrew, and it is beautiful. Genesis 1 is a poem. If you've never heard it read that way, that's what it is. It's a Hebrew poem, and it kind of has this rhythm and this bounce. As God is creating things, there's like this rhythm that starts to take place and this bounce that kind of comes with it. There literally is rhyming and movement. It feels like everything is kind of gelling, and it's like all coming together. It's like a band that's found its groove, and everything is kind of happening, and you you kind of start off in Genesis 1 where it's kind of slow and it's like taking off a little bit, starts to get a little bit bigger. There's all these things as God creates, you know, water and land. He creates sun and moon and stars and plants and animals and dumb things like mosquitoes and stuff. Like we don't even know. He's making all these things and with everything he's saying, it's good. And as he's doing that, there's this rhythm and this bounce. Why? Because there's a harmony, there's a hierarchy. 
And God is at the top of it. And then he puts man in the middle, lower than the angels, but higher than the animals. And he says, you are here. You have this free will to choose because there is no love without free will. And so he says, you have this ability to choose what you want, if you want me or something else. And he continues to create. And we get into Genesis 2 and that like rhythm and bounce and harmony and hierarchy, it's all falling together. It's like me when I took my daughter to watch the Taylor Swift concert. We went to Eras. And like, I got there and I was like, I'm not into this. And then all of a sudden by the end, I'm like, shake it off, shake it. Like, I was like, I'm in. Like, this is, wore my red scarf. I walked out of there with a 13 on my hands. I was exchanging bracelets with 13 year old girls. No, I'm just kidding. That's weird. <laughs> but there's this rhythm and this bounce. There's this harmony and this hierarchy. And then when you get to Genesis 3 or Genesis 2, let me just show you what's happening here. In Genesis 2, let's start there. First of all, God creates this whole kind of outline. And I want you to see what happens in Genesis 2 when he creates this, because there's like a little bit of a a geography issue that we have to understand in this. In Genesis 2, it says that now the Lord God, he planted this garden, and it says in the east. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, there's kind of a bigger surrounding area. There's the east. Then it says inside of there, in Eden. That's like inside of the east. Another spot inside of it. And then inside of that, he puts the man he formed dude named Adam. He puts Adam there, which means amen, right? And then in the middle of that, in the middle of that, there's a tree. So I want you to see there's concentric circles working, right? There's this outer and then this inner and this very inside where there are these trees. And it says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing and good for, good, pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of that garden, There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, usually when we talk about Genesis, we only think about one of these trees, the knowledge of good and evil, and we kind of forget about the tree of life, don't we? We forget that was there. It becomes like the afterthought. It's like the, I don't know, like the Fitch to the Abercrombie or like the Roebuck to the Sears, for those of you that are my age, or like the... Meridian to the guide, right? One time, I remember one time saying to somebody when we first moved here, I was on the guide meridian and that person looked at me. I was at a coffee. It looked, they, I, it, they looked at me like I had just ordered like a venti in any other coffee shop at Starbucks, you know? And they're like, we don't say that here. Don't, please don't use that word here. They, we forget about this tree of life. And what's interesting is it seems that God has no limit to life. There's no like stipulation, like you can only have so much life every day. There's only so much of the tree of life you can eat from. Actually, it seems like that one's unlimited. And then there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he leaves him there to make a choice, and we know what happens. Actually, at this point in Genesis 3, when we start to see what happens in Genesis 3, that rhythm and that bounce, that harmony and that hierarchy actually all falls apart. There is no more rhythm. There is no more bounce. The poem breaks down. Why? Because the hierarchy is out of place. And I don't know if you remember what happens, but a snake shows up and starts talking, which is a situation. Uh, we, We don't have to get into it today, but it's weird. And remember, this is a snake that Adam named, and all of a sudden, that hierarchy is out of place. No longer is it God and man and creation. In fact, we've moved creation and started listening to creation rather than creator. We've realigned the hierarchy and we start listening to the creation. And that creation tells us a lie. And by a lie, I mean 
anything that is not a truth. And notice what he says. Like when he talks, he says, he doesn't say like, let's sin. Let's do something outright wrong. The snake starts with, because he's smarter than that, he says, did God really say, like did God really say that? Isn't this how every sin begins, by the way? Guys who have ever been in any situation where it's just guys together, this is how every bad idea starts. (laughs) Did your wife really say? (laughs) Did God really say? It's just not truth. Now, it's not a lie. It doesn't feel like a lie to us because he's smarter than that. And we fall for it. And this doesn't just happen to Adam and Eve one time in a garden. This happens every single day to every single one of us. We still buy the lie. And we forego the tree of life to try to get the knowledge of good and evil. Because we decided we want to know what's best for us. I love the way St. Ignatius puts what sin is. St. Ignatius of Loyola in the 6th century said this, that sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. When I decide that I need to take it into my own hands, I'll do my own Hedonai, thank you very much. You can keep your logos to yourself. I know what's best for me. I don't need your life because I will create my own happiness. You don't know what my happiness is, God. Anybody ever felt that? God doesn't want our happiness. I know what my happiness is, he doesn't. A few few years ago, we planted a church in in, uh, Trinity, Florida, which is a a place that you would think would already have a lot of churches because it's called Trinity, Florida. And so we planted a church there and uh, we were trying to meet people in the community just like get to know some of our neighbors and whatever. And so we're doing all these events to try to get people to come out and meet us. And one of the people on our staff, she said, hey, Kevin, you've been a photographer before. You take some pictures. And uh, we have other people in our church that are photographers. What if we did a family photo day that was just free family photos? And I was like, yeah, that's a terrible idea, but we'll try it. And then like hundreds of people showed up. And it's hard being a genius all the time, guys. (laughs) And so it was a really good idea. And these people show up from all over the place. And one couple shows up. And they're a married couple named Katie and Jessica. And they come with uh, their daughter and their dogs to get their pictures taken. And Katie and Jessica come to this family photo thing and say, so you guys are from a church? And we're like, yeah. And they were like, "Um, can we come to that church? And we're like, absolutely, you bet, thinking there's no way they're coming to our church. And then the next day, the very next day, they both show up in our church. And immediately after service, my friend Katie now, uh, she comes up to me and she says, hey, I don't know what this means even. I, I don't really know what it is, but I think I'm supposed to do it. Uh, what is baptism and can I do it today? And I was like, well, let's give it a second. Let's pump the brakes for just, just <laughs> put a pin in that. And so we, uh, she does, she waits. And she comes back nearly, literally, almost every single Sunday for the next year. And a year to the date, I kid you not, she comes back to me and says, Kevin, I want to get baptized. I guess we're going to have this conversation, you know? So we go to a Starbucks because we don't have good coffee shops in Florida. Um, <laughs> we go to the lowest common denominator of coffee. And we go there and we uh, hang out. I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> we go and we, we're sitting at the coffee shop. And I asked her, I said, Katie, you're 43 years old. Like, uh, why do you want to get baptized now? What, what about this makes you want to do this? And she goes through her life story about the abuse she suffered as a child, about the things she went through when she was 18 years old. She ran away at 16. When she was 18, she married a man who went to prison from the time they were 18 until she was 38. When he got out of prison, they tried to get back together for just a short bit. He was so abusive, she could not stay with him. And she said, so I left him, and um, my father told me he, was, he had cancer. And so she said, I just decided I was going to end my life at that point. She said, but then um, I found out I was pregnant and uh, with my ex-husband's child. And she said, I thought I at least need to stay alive for this little girl. So that kept me alive. And she said, I met my partner at work, and, um, and we got married. And I've been trying to figure things out. And I said, I get that, um, but why do you want to get baptized? And she starts bawling, like in a Starbucks. And when you're a person in a Starbucks who's sitting with somebody who's bawling, people assume you're a jerk. Like, that's just what happens, right? <laughs> She's like, I didn't say anything, I promise. It's... Yikes. So she starts crying, and, uh, and she says, Kevin, I, this is her words, I just want that new life that you keep talking about. I don't want this life anymore. And so I told her, I said, um, I'm going to be honest with you, Katie. Um, and I said, uh, I, I want to be clear. My role is not to be judge or jury. It's not my role. My job is to be a witness. I don't know if you've ever read the Great Commission. But Jesus doesn't say that you are to be judges and juries to all the world. But he says, you'll be my witnesses. And so as a witness, I just want to tell you my experience with Jesus. I said, as you start this journey, and I want to baptize you because I want you to begin that journey. Baptism is not a finish line, it's a starting point. And I said, I want to begin this with you, and I want to walk with you through it. And I said, I'm not going to say what it's going to be or anything. I just want you to know that Jesus is going to call things out of your life that might have to change. And I, and I said, before you think it's anything that is uh, only you, I want you to know that Jesus calls things out of my life on a daily basis, and I'm terrible about it. Um, my sin, your sin, we could stack them up, I'd probably win. I said, so I'm just here to tell you what it's going to be like. And she looked at me, and she started like the snotty crying. You know what I'm talking about? Like where there's like snot bubbles, like it's the full thing. And she said to me, she said, I will give up everything to get that new life. And I realized something about Katie that day and something about myself. And let me say this, I realized that Katie got it at a level that I do not. I don't want to give up everything. I really don't, if I'm being honest with you. I don't know that I've ever been that desperate. Because why? Because like, my Hedonai is pretty good. But she gets the logos that I don't get. She sees the meaning behind it that I'm not even fully comprehending. It's like, oh, that's, that's where it's at. That's where life really begins, isn't it? For many of us, we've kind of fallen short on that. And at this moment, 
God, he separates us from that tree of life. Like there's actually a separation that happens. Now it's not a full separation, but if you notice in Genesis chapter three, he does separate things. He actually creates kind of this barrier and it says that he closes off the garden. You can't get back to the tree of life. You can't get back there anymore. It says he drove them out, right? He drives them out. He placed them on the east side of the garden of Eden. They're no longer there. And then it says that he put a cherubim with a sword, a flaming sword that was flashing back and forth. I picture essentially like an angel with a lightsaber. That's just like, they're like, you're not getting back in. And this cherubim's standing there waiting for it because it can't happen. But God isn't done yet because what we see in Exodus is that God sets up this tabernacle. And he says, I'm going to set up this tabernacle. And it's interesting because he sets up this bigger outside picture There's a bigger region, there's a concentric circle. Then there's like this inner region that's a holy place, maybe like the Garden of Eden. And then in the middle of that, guess what he says? I'm gonna put an ark there, it's going to have my presence. And guess what's guarding that ark? Guess what's guarding his presence? He says, make a cherubim. He puts the angel there and says, we're still gonna guard this place of life, but I am still here in this tabernacle that now holds this place of life. The tree of life is still here. And then we fast forward to the book of John where Jesus shows up in that great verse that John, you know, took like months to craft in John chapter one, verse 14, where he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What is he saying there? What is the Greek word? The word, guess what that word is? The logos. Not the Hedoni, the Logos. Everything you've been searching for, everything that you've been disappointed about, every fear you've had, all the anxiety you carry, guess what? The solution to it is in a person because he said, and he made his dwelling among us. What's the word for dwelling that John uses here? It's not a Greek word, by the way. It's not a word that makes any sense if you read this in the Greek. It's a word that comes out of the Old Testament. The word he uses for dwelling there is the word tabernacle, right? He's saying he set up this tabernacle, this garden, this whole thing is starting over again, and he's now with us. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we get to Jesus in John chapter 14, this is what happens. This is why he's saying it here, by the way, because he's right between communion and this John 15 conversation about being the vine and the branches. Why? Because what is communion if not eating of the tree of life? Take my body, take my blood, eat and drink. This is where you're gonna find life. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, abide in me, I am life. And he says, If you remain in me, you will have life that is eternal. If you are far from me, you will die. That's what he says to us. And so when he gets to John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Maybe you're like, okay, cool. Like, I want this logos thing to happen, but how do I get there? Like, what's the formula? How does this work? And if you ask that question, um, I've got really good news for you. Because Jesus lays it all out in this verse. And if you don't mind... We'll walk backwards through it because we know what the life is, but Jesus actually tells us how to get that life. 
And it's not maybe the way you want it to be, if we're being honest. It's not the way I want it to be, at least. This is what he says. I am the way, the truth, the life. Let's walk backwards through that. So we know what the life is, but how do we get there? Well, the first thing we have to understand is that there is truth. That he is also the truth. We live in a world of lies. And I'm not just talking like media. That's too easy. Um, they're an easy target, and it's, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying don't think that that's where I'm going with this. We live in a world full of lies. They're not always fully lies. They're just not quite truth. Did God really say? We live in that world. John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, he does a great job laying this out, but here's what he says. He says, our war against the three enemies, and those three enemies are the enemies that Thomas Aquinas wrote about in the 16th century, where he talks about the three enemies of the soul are the world, the flesh, and the devil. But anyways, of the three enemies of the soul is not um, a, a war of guns and bombs. It's not against other people at all. It's a war on lies. And the problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies and they wreak havoc on our souls. So the, the, the easy way to look at it is, yes, um, is there a lie? Like, is the media lying to you? Or is, are there lies around you? Pro yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I just want to be clear. Um, there are things there that are just there to stoke your fears, create anxiety, and then uh, make you disappointed so that you'll buy the thing at the next commercial break. I just want to be clear, that's what's happening. Okay, so that's not like the secret. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, hopefully. Um, in fact, if I can show you a very quick video clip, this is the first video clip that was ever made. This is on Thomas Edison's gyroscope, is what it was called, and he made a video. This is the first video ever shot in the history of videos. You ready for it? Okay, here we go. That was it. That was it. What did you think? Pretty good? <laughs> Credits will roll. Uh, it was nominated for a lot of awards because it was the only one. <laughs> Had a run on the market. But it was, uh, I mean, I, the thing about this video is that what he's doing is it's a man sneezing. And you know what's crazy? Is immediately after this was made, people started to question, was it real? Like, did the man actually just sneeze? What are the chances the camera was rolling at the exact moment he sneezed? Is it really a sneeze? Were they just looking for something that looked universal so we'd all understand it? What was this? Was it a real sneeze or not? Have you ever heard this about the media? Have you ever heard this in the things you watch? Yeah. Because guess what? The thing that happens is true. There is truth. The thing that happens is truth. The moment you move it to media, it has a slant. It doesn't matter what it is. It always does. That's just the way it works. Somebody writes about it, somebody talks about it, somebody says something. There's going to be a little bit of slant to it. That's just the way it works. And that's the easy target. That's the public target. But let's talk about what the enemy does, because that's not the only place, and that's not, the, that's not how he does his work. He does his work personally. He does his work in lies that happen inside of us. And we blame these lies. We look at the big picture thinking like, we'll just push it out there. That's the easy target. It is. But have you ever heard this lie or felt this lie? That um, God doesn't really love you. Or you're just a constant disappointment to God. Last night, I was in the commons and I had a woman... Um, I've known for a long time, come up to me and said, I believed that 
I was a disappointment to God for 18 years of my life. And like we read the Bible, like we all come to church and I think there's still many of us that believe and we live this lie. Did God really say that he loves you? Because um, you're not worth that. There's an enemy who will convict and condemn. My job is to be a witness. Why? Because there's an enemy whose job it is to convict and condemn. If you ever look up the word Satan in the, in the Greek or in the Hebrew, it's not like a proper name. It's not like there was like a roll call and there was like, well, John and Sam and Satan or whatever. Like that's not how it works. Satan is a title. And in fact, in the Hebrew, it would be called Hasatan. And Hasatan means the Satan, first of all. And the word Satan is actually the word for an adversary or an accuser. So guess what? When I step into the job of, um, first of all, let me just say this. When I step into the job of condemning or convicting and being that person, guess whose role I'm actually playing? Yeah, that hurts, doesn't it? We think we're playing the role of God. More often we're playing the part of the enemy. And Jesus says about this enemy that he is the father of lies. That's what Jesus calls him, the father of lies. And the problem is, is many of us believe those lies. We believe those things. We believe that God is mad at us. He's disappointed us. Some of us believe this lie. If you confess your sin, everyone will hate you. That's a lie that we believe. But in John 3.16, um, the verse that Tim Tebow wrote, <laughs> what does John write? That for God so loved, he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Life, right? Everlasting life. And then he says, and he didn't send his son to condemn the world, but through him the world would be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the father of lies. Saved from the lies that we're telling ourselves. Jesus is the truth. He is the truth. And then he skips back a step further and he says, and I'm also the way. Now here's the problem. This is the one that I think we hate the most. For being honest, a lot of us like information. We do not like transformation. If we like transformation, every single one of us, we have all the information we need to do everything we want, right? So like if we wanted just information, we could get that. But if, if we were really about transformation, every single one of us would be a millionaire. We'd all have six packs. Like we, we'd look great, you know? Like, but we don't want to do the transformation part. That's not how we work. We forget that we're like not just a brain that is just like on its own. It's a brain attached to a body. And so we forget that there is a way of Jesus, like a way of living. We have to do things with it. And that's way harder than it seems. We live in an information bombardment society. We get information all the time. If you ever read Neil Postman's work on this, it's fantastic and amusing ourselves to death. He talks about how at one point in our society, information was actionable. Like there was action attached to information. So in fact, like, um, I don't know anybody, like I'm, I'm old. Um, Anybody remember a party line? Do you remember party lines? Okay. My grandparents had a party line, and they live in the middle of just nowhere in Oklahoma. It's literally called no man's land. And they're always like, they're always like we're going to pass this land down to you guys someday. And we're like, it's, nobody else wanted it. Like, I don't know what we're going to do with it. 
It's in the middle of nowhere, and they have party lines, right? And so I remember one time uh, we were, there, were, there was a phone call. Now, if you don't know what a party line is, it was like uh, a clump of houses would be on one phone circuit. So you could pick up a phone in any of those houses and just talk to each other at any time. So it wasn't like you could talk to everybody, but you could talk to each other. And it was kind of just like this one little circuit that everybody had. And I remember like, so you had to be careful about when, who you were gossiping about, by the way, because like they could pick up at any moment and you'd be like, oh no. So it was like that kind of thing. And, and I remember there was one time I picked up the phone and I hear um, that the Smith family's barn was burning down. Now, there's a part of me that wants to be like, well, thank you for the information. Can't wait to go do, do nothing about this. That's how we hear information a lot of times. Like the best we do today is we go and I would make like my Facebook profile picture, have like a little ring around it that says like, save the Smith barn or whatever, right? <laughs> Hashtag save the Smith barn. I'm a social justice warrior. <laughs> Saving the world one post at a time. So we would do, right? Like we don't do much with information if we're being honest, but the information, the goal of it was to be actionable. It led to transformation. You have to do something with what you've been told. This is why Jesus, with every teaching he makes, he says, those who hear my words and put them into practice. We actually have to do something with it. Yesterday, I went out for a run with Pastor Bob, and I don't know if you know this about Pastor Bob. Um, he's a runner. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a person who can run. There's a difference between those two things. Like, I know the steps to take. I know how it works, I think. Like, one foot in front of the other. I own some shoes, uh, that kind of thing. I am not necessarily a runner. And so we go out for a run, I'm like, and I'm talking to Bob, and I'm like, so, you know, you've been doing all these marathons, all these things, and he's always like, yeah, I'm in this training right now, and I'm taking a break for this, but then I got to get ready for this. And he has all these things. And guess what? Like, I want to be a runner, but I don't want to do the lifestyle of a runner. Like, I, I want to be a runner. I want the running things that come with it. I like getting medals. That feels good. You know, I like being in shape. That seems like a cool thing. I like listening to good music while I'm outside. That's great. That's why, you know, you don't listen to country music while you run. You listen to good music. Like, you, that's why you never, see, you never see a runner in cowboy boots for that reason, because... No runners are listening to country music, right? Like, they know better. So you're out there running, like, you have a great time. I love all the ideas of being a runner. Guess what? I don't want to live the lifestyle of a runner. And I think many of us do the same thing with Jesus, is that we want the, the life that Jesus offers, but we do not want the way of Jesus that comes with it. I want to be, I want to be patient, but I don't want to wait for anything. I want to give generously and give everything away, but I also want to be like really rich, you know, right? I want to be kind, but like not to people who are kind of annoying, <laughs> you know? I, I want the life that Jesus offers me, but I don't want the way of Jesus. And guess what? They go hand in hand. You do not get the life of Jesus unless you live the way of Jesus. Sorry. Wish it was easier than that. He says, I am the way. This is why when Paul writes in Galatians, Paul writes this thing where he says, it's a really weird verse in, in chapter four of Galatians. Paul writes and he says, My dear children, for whom I am in labor pains, I'm having labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Now I don't know if you know this or not. Paul's a dude. I, I went to I went to seminary. <laughs> No big deal. Paul's a dude. I learned that. 
And he says, I have labor pains. I mean, think about that for a second, right? And what is he talking about? Is that when you start to have these pains, things change. There's a physical change that takes place. Following Jesus is not just a, a cerebral activity. It actually takes some physical movement. It will change things in you. We were over on Orcas Island this week, and I remember we were at a restaurant, and we were remembering when Marie was there when we were, kid, when we were younger. We were kids, like we were so young, and she was pregnant. And we were sitting at a restaurant with some friends, and the waiter comes over, and, uh, and, and our friends are talking to us, and the waiter kind of comes by and walks away, and uh, our friends say, so, like, Marie, are you having, like, any cravings right now? Anything happening? And she was like, no, that's ridiculous. And then the waiter comes back by, and Marie goes, uh, by the way, do you have any chocolate milk? I was like, so no cravings, huh? Everything's pretty normal? It's dinner. You're having, like, salmon and chocolate milk, I think. <laughs> think it's a little weird, if I'm being honest. Why? Because your taste should change until Christ is formed in you. The things that you do should change. Your body, you should physically create space where Jesus is taking up that space within you. You'll never get the life that Jesus offers unless you're willing to say, I'll give everything else up and follow the way. And the last thing Jesus says, if we walk back through the, backwards through this statement, is we get to where he just says a very simple thing, and I think it's the hardest thing for us to grapple with. He says, I am. And guess what that means? We're not. We're not. We might be really good at Hedoni, but we're not the Logos. For many of us, I think we want to be that. We want to be co-creators with God. We look at Genesis 1 and we say, I want to choose what's my greatest happiness instead of trusting that what you want for me is only my greatest happiness. There's this great moment at the beginning of the book of John when John's writing about all this stuff. At the beginning of the book of John, there's a moment where he's talking about John the Baptist. And it's funny because John the Baptist is like new on the scene. And all these Pharisees and church leaders start coming to him. They start asking him questions. And they start saying, John, are you the Messiah? And John the Baptist says, no. And they're like, well, are you the one we're waiting for? And he says, no, I'm not. And then they say, are you a prophet? Are you Moses? Are you Elijah? And he says, no. And then he finally says, I am the one in the wilderness crying out, make straight the paths for the Lord. Now, I don't know about you and me, but if we had a group of people come to us and be like, are you the Messiah? You'd kind of be like, I don't know, what do you think? I mean, like, like what does it pay? Is it... Got, got benefits or anything? Oh, it ends like that? No, if it ends like that, I don't think so. We'd at least give it a go. But there's the old saying that God created man in his image, and then man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. And we decided that you are now in our image. We've shrunk you down to our size. And I am the source of ultimate happiness. I am the source of ultimate truth. I am the source of life. Jesus is saying he is the only one who can do that. C.S. Lewis, in his famous work of mere Christianity, he writes this. He says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. 
If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy or power or peace or eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not just a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy, a logos, if you will, the, a beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. And once a man is united to God, how could he not have this eternal life? How could he not live forever? But once a man is separated from God, what can he do but just wither and die? If you would, let's stand together as we close this morning. And I want to just pray a quick prayer of blessing over you. And what we're going to do is we're going to sing these words. It may be a song you don't know yet, but I promise you, you've heard the words to the chorus before because I've said them the whole time. And we're going to declare that he is the way and the truth and the life. That he is. And Jesus, I thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life. That we can bring all of our fear, our anxiety, our disappointments to you. And that it never comes back void because you are the way, the truth, and the life. We pray that you would teach us that we are not, but that you are that you would teach us that we can rely on you for only our greatest happiness, that we can change ourselves to start to follow your way, to believe in your truth, and to find your everlasting life. We thank you for that promise, and we pray that we would commit ourselves to that today. Praise things in your name.